0: Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Dr. Debbie Builder from URAD, the Utah Registry of Autism and Developmental Disabilities, to the podcast to discuss the value of knowing the prevalence rates of autism and how data can benefit the community as a whole. Dr. Builder's clinical expertise is in psychiatric assessment and treatment for individuals with severe neurodevelopmental disabilities across their lifespan. Dr. Builder is the URAD Principal Investigator. Uh, Dr. Bilder, it's uh, wonderful to have you on the program. Um, I'm I'm actually I'm going to start with a personal question, um, only because it's we're in a passion-driven field, and I'd love to to know, you know, how did you find your way into a psychiatric medicine, but be the autism population?
1: Um, it is a passion-driven field, um, and as I think about you describing it that way it kind of just even gives me more insight into how this connection happened. Um, I did my training here as a psychiatrist, a pediatrician, and a child psychiatrist here at the University of Utah. And I had intended, when I had finished my training, to take care of teenagers with diabetes. That's what I thought I was going to do. But as luck would have it, that the department that I joined Um, to do my work. Well, you know, that's not what they really needed at that moment. What they really needed was someone to help with this new program they had. And that program was called the Neuro Behavior Home Program. It was brand new and it took care of the medical and the psychiatric needs of children and adults with severe developmental disabilities. And as a board certified pediatrician and soon to be board certified psychiatrist, well, that's really where they felt they, they needed my help. So they told me, I can do this for, you know, I just need to do this for a year. That's it. And then I can go ahead and do what I had planned on doing with the teenagers with diabetes. And I thought, okay, that sounds good. Who I really have to thank for this and going into this field, because I am so grateful for how that all went down, um, is Dr. Lisa Samson-Fang. She is a developmental pediatrician in our community. And having heard that I would be part of this new program, she invited me to participate Um, in a program she ran that taught people like me, so um, professionals, um, doctors, nurses, speech therapists, occupational therapists, psychotherapists, Um, it taught us over a year how to work with these individuals and how to work with their families. And through this year-long program, which kind of mirrored that first year at the HOME program, I really got to know these individuals and I got to know the families and I realized just how inspiring these families were. And I also realized how, um, how I just kind of connected with the other providers. Like we shared this sense of wanting to make a difference and this population, you could really make such a big difference in their quality of life and, and what they can do um, when you work with them. So by the end of that year of my training um, and of at the home program, um, you know, I was given the opportunity to go off and take care of my teenagers with diabetes, and I didn't want to go anywhere. These were my people. (laughs) I love this. Um, and, And that's it, but it's that, it's that connection to that human experience that I realized when I jumped into this and I got to know these families and these individuals outside of the doctor's office. Yeah. Um, so now it's that, funny
0: with that, with that experience, I, I actually had a very similar experience, but it's, it's almost like you become embedded in the community. It's, yeah. it's like, this becomes a new family, an extended family, but a family nonetheless that, that now you're a part of. And it's like, wow, I, I didn't think that I'd have this much connection to yes. my work, my job, my community. And it just happens.
1: <laughs> and, and I, and I it, there's it like you resonate, like it resonates um, when you're with these families, when you're with other providers who are also drawn um, to this population, it's like, you just get it, you know, you, you mm-hmm. just, and, and I have to say, I couldn't imagine out doing anything else. It would be so boring. <laughs> Like, I I feel like in what I do, like there's never a dull moment Um, Mm -hmm. and everyone is so unique and and you see that uniqueness in these folks. It's just right there, you know, what makes them them. Um, It's not shielded or cascaded by, you know, by all these other things. They are who they are.
0: Um, And and I do want to get to the work that that you, Rad, does. But before we go there, is that um, I just kind of a follow-up question to what what you're talking about here. I feel like I've learned so much myself by working with the autistic community. And I've learned a lot about myself and it's actually growth that I'm seeing. Um, do you see that within within your own career, within your own interactions, your own personal relationships as far as, you know, I'm learning from the people that I'm serving at the same time?
1: Yes, um, so much. Uh, I think When I had my first child, who is now 15, I remember how inspiring the parents were who I worked with. I I would get so frustrated over something. And then I would think about something one of the parents had told me or something I saw the parents do. And I would just think, you know, I can do this. I can make the right choice. I can figure this out. I can address this issue. These parents are so inspiring and I think what's also amazing is just the love, the love that they have for, for these, these kids and these adults. And I think that inspires me it, mm-hmm. is, is the depth of, of their love and their connection and their concern and go to the end of the earth to do what needs to yeah. be done, you know, to, to, to make things better for these folks and to give these individuals opportunities yeah. um, that I, I learn, I learn on a regular basis. That's for yeah, sure.
0: And, and I would imagine uh, the, the work that's being done with URAD right now, and actually it, it looks like it's been going on since the 80s, and collecting the data. We've gone from prevalence rates that were Um, so few and far between, I mean, it was more than one in a hundred and probably back in the eighties is that this was an unknown number. And now we're down to one in 50 on, on average. I mean, when you're looking at the boys and you're looking at the girls, is that differs a little bit, but tell me, um, what exactly is, is URAD doing? What is, what is the project that the Utah, or that the the autism registry is doing?
1: Well, what we are is we are a partnership between the Department of Health and the University of Utah Department of Psychiatry. And our job is to measure and understand the characteristics of individuals with autism across the state. Because when you think about all the needs that are out there in regards to services, in regards to education, in regards to job training, in regards to housing, if you don't know exactly how many individuals are talking about and what their characteristics are, it would be like driving a school bus down a street with the windshield just covered with mud. Like you don't know where you're going or Mm -hmm. perhaps even where you've been. And so fundamentally, being able to get really good, solid data um, is central to being able to plan and collect the resources for the needs of of this this community.
0: um, And and one A piece that you just actually kind of made me think about there as you were talking is that um, without this data is, would we have any idea where to be putting any of these resources, any of the finances, is that we don't have um, uh, pockets that are infinite with, uh, with money, um, even as a state, is that you have to figure out where it goes. And well,
1: you do. And you do. And, and not only that, you need to be able to estimate what it's gonna cost. I mean, there's there's lots of great ideas out there, but fundamentally we, as a society, we need to understand um, what what would this initiative, who would it serve? How many folks will it serve? Um, and and then what cost will likely be associated with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what URAT has done, we've been around, your, so URAT has been around since 2002. I'm impressed that you're aware. <laughs> that the department of psychiatry has been doing, has been measuring autism since the eighties. You're right. Most folks don't know that, Um, but you has been around since 2002 Uh, and as a result of being able to measure the prevalence and characteristics of um, children um, and now adults with autism, um, we were able to uh, be a fundamental part of really a call to action that happened around 2012 when, we realized through these measurements that we had the highest rate of measure prevalence of autism among all the different sites across the country that were measuring autism in the same way. And this was really a call to action in 2012 that really kind of catapulted forward the Medicaid um, pilot um, program, which gave access to ABA therapy, which, as you know, is what there is that helps children, you know, change their future trajectory um, in regards to their skills and abilities related to their autism. Um, And we were able to um, help the legislature understand how big of an issue this is and how important of an issue this is so that they could subsequently do this pilot program. And as a result of the pilot program, the legislature learned that uh, this, this works, the ABA works, there's a great need for it, Um, they then moved on to the Medicaid waiver. Um, And in 2014, um, you know, our numbers, again, supported the um, legislature passing a bill that that required private health insurance to cover autism services. Um, and, And really what was necessary as part of the legislative process was having clear numbers as to who are we talking about and Um, a clear understanding of what the costs will be that will be associated with it so that proper planning um, can be done.
0: Um, And 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 this
1: is really our role.
0: I would imagine from that particular study and just getting that data and that information is that awareness kicks up and in training programs almost is in the pediatric world is that autism wasn't necessarily part of the education series that pediatricians went through. It's, it, it wasn't part and screeners weren't being required and getting children access to care. Is this all a component of some of the, the results of the prevalence studies is, is getting this oh, early intervention?
1: Definitely. Um, so back in 2007, gosh, where I'm going to push away the cobwebs. Back in 2007 which is the first year in which our data um, along with other sites around the country um, was released um, that's when we realized that autism was not that rare condition as you were referring to before it is not one in or four in ten thousand you know at that time it was about one in 35 or one in um, 150, but far more common. And as a result, it really drew focus towards the needs of these kids and the needs to identify um, this condition that's no longer rare. Um, and, and along the, these same times, even maybe before then, we realized that this isn't something that you have and you can't do anything about and you'll always have these challenges. This is something which, if it's identified early, these children can learn the skills that their peers are learning. They, they can be taught these abilities that their peers are just figuring out on their own when their brain is most capable, which is when it's mm-hmm. wired to do this. Um, and so I, I think there's an awareness, not just of autism, but there was also an awareness at that same time, that there is an early intervention that really helps these kids and their families. And the sooner we identify this condition, the sooner these kids will have the opportunity to have their best shot mm-hmm. at being able to engage with their, their peers and you know, pursuing the dreams that they may have and having the relationships that, that they may desire.
0: Yeah. And on the flip side of that, you might have right now is that you're starting to see prevalence rates for adult populations and saying, hey, you know what, we need to put some money towards job resources. We need to start putting money towards um, community activities for uh, the the adult population, social, behavioral health, things like that, which might not been available without understanding the total impact of what's going on. You know,
1: and that's exactly so. As you think about, I mean, really, it's policy. It's, you know, these these needs, in order for there to be a systematic means of addressing this for our community, for our society, ultimately, these needs need to translate into policy. Um, and it's in that translation in particular that having these numbers and having this data um, can inform these policies. And so, for example, um, the Carmen B. Pingry Center for Learning, when they um, opened up their, well, when they even were developing their adult autism campus, they reached out to us so that we can give them clear numbers so that as they worked with the legislature and advocated, they had something very specific um, to talk about. Um, at Columbus Center, you know, has reached out to us. Uh, so that we can um, help them understand clear numbers so that they too can advocate and develop and design um, programs um, for those who they, who they serve.
0: Good information is so powerful. As, so it, it sounds like this is something far easier to do in a healthcare system like uh, the UK or Canada, where it's a little bit more of a, you got easy access to data, you got easy access to the number. How does it work in, yeah. in utah
1: yeah so um so in utah uh the health department so it's actually health code um gosh i can't recall exactly when but maybe it was 2008 2009 um, it became health code that autism was a reportable condition it was recognized by this time to be far more common than we had thought from some of our initial work um and it was realized that as a it's a public health issue it's a public health concern so it became a reportable condition in in which you read um, had the authority, you know, through the health department, to um, request information from health sources, um, uh, like um, you know, hospital systems, healthcare systems, um, individual providers, mental health systems, on um, who was affected, who were they identified with autism. Um, we also have partnered with um, the schools. Um, to understand who is receiving special education. This is just among those with special education, but who's receiving special education and, and, and who has autism as a special education exceptionality. This allows us, because I can, we can put together those who are um, served in health settings and those who are served in school settings, we can create a single group without duplicates of kids so that we understand this population beyond what you could do looking at either one of those. Um, And we can help these different groups understand what piece of this they do and how they um, could understand and recognize the contribution of the other group. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, um, uh, Dr. Bakian and I helped her, she she put together this analysis looking at this facial relationship. So among children at different ages uh, is there are there hotspots, you know, among our Wasatch Front where kids are being identified with autism. Um, and this is before the waiver went through. Um, and this is before um, the healthcare law went through. And she identified in really young kids um, uh, for six years of age, oh, there are these hot spots, and they seem to be related to these high socioeconomic areas. What could be going on? And then when she took the same cohort, the same group of kids, when they turned eight and we looked again, gone. Those hot spots were gone. And what that let us know is that, wow, look at the role the schools are playing in mm-hmm. identifying these kids and meeting the needs of these kids who are not from high socioeconomic status, you know, who, who can't afford, you know, these, these assessments or even maybe even have the awareness yeah. of autism. Um, and so, I, I, think, uh, so I, I think those are the kind of things that we've been able to understand by having an opportunity to link health and education sources to put a common picture together.
0: Um, without information like that is that you're always going to end up with uh, a disparity of, of care. And, and at times it would almost be neglectful to any area that either is uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged or geographically disadvantaged because they don't have the same access to care to be able to yes. get that early diagnosis, to get that early treatment, and to start changing the prognosis over time. It's right. so valuable to be able to get that information out there. So um, I, I guess uh, the, the question that would always come to mind is that uh, every state that we that, that, uh, that I've been a part of is that Every culture is very different. Every uh, every state and government is so different, and the perception of government is so different. Is there is there any uh, misinformation going out there regarding a the idea of a registry uh, or using the information? Like it, it sounds to me like it's all positive, but I mean, is there anything out there that that would prevent somebody from from being excited about this?
1: Well. Uh, So I I get it, uh, as far as people's concerns about privacy. And so our data exists behind multiple firewalls. Um, It's important for us to do the type of work we do um, in regards to getting a population based understanding of autism for exactly the issues you brought up. We identified that the Latino population had abnormally low levels in a manner that wouldn't be explained by anything physiologic. And so we realized gosh, maybe a decade ago that we need to increase awareness um, in that population. Um, this you'd only know from a population based-based level. Um, our privacy um, is th- that we put in place uh, is uh, quite extensive. Uh, we are uh, closely, we have close oversight um, from the state as we should. Um, as far as how our, our data is used in regards to looking at aspects related to autism, we have an oversight committee that uh, meets and it involves st- the stakeholders from our community, particularly um, sources um, of data so education mountain the university um, as well as providers in the community uh, that could really help us think through the questions that are that are important um, and this, this type of oversight, I, I think, is really critical for a public health program, which is what this is, um, because fundamentally, the job, our job is to improve our public health and, and improve the services and awareness. And it's important that we're guided um, by questions, research questions, that truly are intended to uh, make a difference in, these, in the lives of these kids and, the, and their families. I can give you an example. Um, so gosh, maybe it was about seven years ago or so. Um, there was a study that was published out of, uh, I think North Carolina, I'm not sure that, um, inducing labor, they said inducing labor actually increased the risk of autism. They, they found they in their, you know, in their group, they felt, they felt that they found that, um, that those who had labor inductions, um, were, were more likely to develop autism and subsequently, Um, our obstetricians here in Utah were having moms, pregnant moms, refusing labor induction when it was medically indicated. There was a medical reason to to give birth to that baby. Um, and they were refusing it for fear that their child, they would cause their child to develop autism. And so they came to us and said, will you please look at this? And so we use this clean data that is population-based. Um, And we had access to information in regards to induction of labor because we also work with birth certificate data. And we were able to definitively say, no, induction of labor does not increase the risk of autism. This is not going to put your child at risk. Some medical conditions end up lending themselves to to requiring labor induction. Um, But actually, in one aspect of our cohort, they actually um, did better, those who were induced um, did, did better from an autism perspective than those who are not. And so that is our role is to answer these questions for us um, that have such an impact on, on the health of our, our
0: kids. Yeah. Having that larger data set to be able to kind of mm-hmm. take any of these questions or any of these concerns before it gets out there into the public stratosphere. I mean, we're, we're always at danger of social media guiding decision-making and something like this could really cause a lot of scare and potentially long-term harm to some of the some of the mothers who needed to have the procedure absolutely. and were hesitant simply because they didn't have enough information. Um, so I think I think it's really important. And the participation of community partners is probably equally as important it, so that I, you're getting all that.
1: When I could tell you that our so once we figured this out. And we, of course, had one of our members of our obstetrical team on our team as we were putting this together. They then went to their national organization and they did a keynote speech on this data so that all the obstetricians and gynecologists across the country, probably North America, were aware of this new information that they could then put their patients at ease if that was the concern that was expressed.
0: So glad that that oversight is, is available. So, I mean, from from your point of view and working through this data is that we've seen the prevalence rate climb, um, but at the same time is that we have certain states where we've seen it uh, almost, I'd say artificially, but I'm guessing on that, decrease <laughs> over time as well, as far as like you're seeing like a, a flip-flop. Is that because people aren't reporting or is that because there are other factors contributing?
1: Well, um, I can't. I speak for the other states. Um, here, we saw it rise um, until our cohort of 2008. And that was um, published around, I think, t- 2012, where we identified about 1 in 50, just like you were saying, um, children being affected by autism. Uh, and since then, we've really been right there at about 1 in 50. And the way I've understood it is, you know, this is, we, we got there faster than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I really think it's because of the willingness of our stakeholders in our state to work together for this common purpose so that we'd have access to knowing um, how many individuals are affected by autism. In other states, I just think it took them longer to to get there Mm -hmm. um, and get to that thoroughness of being able to identify autism. But we really have been hanging out around 2%. When they've done studies in adults, I think there's just been a couple. There's one in particular that I can recall in the UK, and they did a prevalent study. It was 2%. Um, and so for me, I'm not sure if if there is something in our environment that we need to be concerned about, um, I don't, I don't see the smoking gun. It is Mm -hmm. our job to be looking and we do look and we continue to look hard, um, as well as understanding what increases risk. Um, but when you have an adult study that also suggests that it's 2%, um, it really puts a spotlight on the awareness um, of this condition. I think the other piece of it too, is um, as a result of the awareness, um, has a co- what's accompanied that is a recognition that early intervention really makes a difference. It truly does on so many different levels. Um, and, and now that people recognize that there is something you can do to make a difference um, in the well-being of these kids and, and their families, there's less reluctance to identify it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it, it used to almost be um, a diagnosis that would exclude you from care. It used to be one that would take you away from other services that would yes, be beneficial. No and finally, that's flipped. Finally, right. it the stigma is gone because now it's right. just it's just an identifying characteristic that allows you to be able to access other resources.
1: That's right. I know. I I mean, I remember the day when you I would intentionally not necessarily put it on a differential diagnosis, um, in regard, uh, like in a, in a progress note, because I knew if it was there, that family there, that visit wouldn't have gotten paid for.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and in reality, um, I wasn't treating their autism. I was treating the mental health condition that was accompanying it. And that's of course yep. what was on my, on my note, but you know, to, to feel the need to take, to not indicate that in the diagnosis, yep. because I know that would be the excuse of of an insurance company to reject that claim and force these family this family to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Well, those days have those days have changed, and, I, and I'm really grateful for that.
0: But it, it's changing because we are gathering the information, and the data is there, I, and it's supportive, and and we're seeing the outcomes from. We have the data. We're getting more people into care, more into treatment, and we're seeing the benefit. And. Yes. So i I could see that tie, but is there is there any improvements that are occurring to to help normalize the the biological testing or diagnostic improvements out there so we can get great clarity on on autism figures
1: so there there's nothing that I know of that is ready for prime time, but I can tell you um what we're learning um, from various studies in that, that, that is being worked on to translate into, now this is what you do in a pediatric office and this is what you do in a primary care setting. Um, what we've learned um, from uh, infant sibling studies, um, which are studies of the younger sibling of a child with autism, because we know that that um, it's a h- highly irritable condition and mm-hmm. there is a 20% likelihood or so that that subsequent sibling is going to develop autism. So if you're trying to understand... How does autism emerge? You know, how does this evolve? Well, those would be a great group to study um, because otherwise, it's two percent of the population. So, the so um, the IVA study, the infant sibling study, followed these children from you know months of age, you know, you know through their first gosh five or six or seven years of age. And what they and not only did they do psychological testing and evaluations, but they did neural imaging. They took pictures of their brain. Um, using an MRI, which is a very safe, it's not radiation, it's a very safe tool. They learned that at a time, at six months of age, when there was nothing that would distinguish these babies who ultimately developed autism from those who were high risk, but didn't, Mm -hmm. they learned that there were changes on their MRI. And so before you could actually see it in the child's behavior and interaction, there were changes that were happening. And then nine Months, twelve months. That's when they were able to start picking up on on differences between these children and those who ultimately did not develop autism.
0: Wow. Um,
1: and so with this lens, it's so First of all, it lets us know that if that if we're going to identify autism at six months of age, you know, or maybe even twelve months of age, we really need to be incorporating additional components to this process. Um, because just looking necessarily at the typical behaviors we look for related to autism, that's not going to quite do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so there's a lot of work being done um, to think about what type of combination of different screening tools or other instruments can be used, particularly in these high-risk children, um, to identify this as early as possible so that we can intervene as early as possible.
0: So not ready for
1: prime time, but there's a lot of work going on right now with this.
0: And then that's where things start right? the yeah. things don't start ready for prime right. time. they start right. with some, they start
1: right things
0: there out there and I mean, if we can tackle the the ability to help people efficiently get into care and give diagnoses that are accurate but are are helping people to access that early intervention that you were talking about as far as why wait two years? And if we get somebody into care in six months, like there's so much to be done there. And I think each step of the way, whether it's the neuroimaging, whether it's um, uh, I think Jerry Dawson's working on an app out of Duke right now that will help with some of this, like there's so much out there that is wonderful technology that would be great to be able to add to the system of care over time. So I hear the excitement uh, in your voice around a lot of these things. What else is exciting you about the autism research that's out there? Is there, well, is there anything coming up?
1: Yeah, there's, well, so what I am particularly, I have a couple areas of research. It's hard for me to just pick one, <laughs> um, but one, one area in which I use ERAD data uh, and the being part of the Atom network, which is the, the, um, Multi-site across different states in the U.S., which we participate in. Um, what, one thing I've been really interested in are our prenatal risk factors. Um, you know, what what there are obviously things we can't change, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, that biologically, but what is it um, that puts a baby, particularly in that second trimester, um, at increased vulnerability. Whether you know for developing autism, um, whether it's you know emotional stress or you know, um, um, so they've done studies that have found that in that second trimester, um, like the the, the moms um, who are exposed to Katrina um, and, and other types of natural disasters, you know those kids were at higher risk. You know what is that? Um, and and because in, in my mind. Um, it's not just the autism itself. It's all those things that accompany it that make it so hard for these kids, the anxiety, the mood issues, the sleep issues, mm-hmm. the gut issues. Um, so I have been really interested in understanding that second trimester. Uh, and I've worked with our patricians here at the university of Utah, which was really a collective effort between the university healthcare system and Intermountain healthcare system. They really do can work together um, and, <laughs> And um, we uh, were able to identify serum samples um, of women um, during pregnancy who participated in an obstetrical study from years ago. And we were able to link their offspring to whether or not that child had um, autism and compare those um, serum samples. So what was drawn out of mom's blood mm-hmm. um, at that time for those who developed autism versus those who did not. And what we identified um, were differences in their steroid-related um, uh, hormones and mm-hmm. hormone markers that suggest that during that time, those kids who develop autism may be um, having their stress response, their HPA axis kicked in sooner um, than when, you would actually, when you'd actually expect it to happen. Um, and, and so, and and there's reasons for that. If that child, that baby needs their HPA access, because that's how that baby survives. If that baby has to, um, be delivered early, like they, Mm -hmm. they need their own ability to produce cortisol, um, to develop their lungs, to develop their gut, to develop their skin. Um, so, so you don't want to stop that but it's really helpful to know that if that might be part of this development of autism for some of these kids, it helps you way understand that there was a reason for that. (laughs) Like you don't want to make them vulnerable. Like this was their part of their survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. But also understand, well, you know, how then can we help these kids who have developed early in regards to their stress response? Well, how can we help them in those, you know, first years of life learn how to manage that stress response. Yeah. That's in hyper acute phase, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I don't know this for sure because this, I don't have data behind it, but it does make me wonder if some of the work that ABA does and therapy does is, is that's what it teaches these kids. It teaches them how to, how to regulate themselves and how to regulate their, their ability to manage frustration and how to regulate their focus and their attention so that they can wait um, yeah. rather than just react to everything. Um, And whether that's kind of part of why ABA works for autism, I don't know. But these are things that, you know, we can understand over time.
0: I I love and appreciate that intersection of of research and treatment. I think that uh, anything that we're putting out there and that we're trying to get the information on, that researchers are working diligently to be able to add to that database of info that we can operate off of, um, it's got to find a way into the practitioner world, and um, so I think that it, I hope that what you're working on makes it to prime time. But uh, minimally, I just got educated on the effects of trauma, and uh, you know, it could impact um, prenatally uh, children, and and that's just I mean, it's it's always interesting seeing what's coming on their horizon. So where where can our listeners find more about uh, you, Rad?
1: Well. Um, You can check out our website uh, as part of the University of Utah. Of course, it's it's going to be kind of a a longer website, Um, but medicine.utah.edu backslash psychiatry, backslash research, backslash labs, backslash URAD. I can tell you how I found it. I Googled URAD, and that's how I got that address because I don't keep that memorized. (laughs) So Uh. I, I Googled URAD, University of Utah, and it brought me right there. Um, and that our website has uh, all the information about URAD, um, our team, um, it, has, uh, it actually has resources on there uh, as a psychiatrist. Um, what's near and dear to my heart is understanding mental health issues um, in mm-hmm. this population that they're very vulnerable for. Uh, and we, we have a video that our staff put together to help other people understand mental health issues related to autism. We have a video that talks about URAD and what we do. We have a video that even talks about um, the Centers for Disease Control and Preventions Program for Autism and Developmental Disabilities uh, monitoring network and so so our our, our website I think, has um, a lot of information that people could find helpful in understanding autism as well as understanding us.
0: and when people do Google that, make sure that make sure they're googling it with two Ds so you are yes. a DD yes. <laughs> yeah. so. Do you have any parting advice for families? I, I mean, ultimately, I'd love to be able to get you back on in the future to talk about um, the, that intersection again of psychiatry with behavioral health and autism. I think it's so crucial. But do you have any other parting advice for families?
1: Um, I do. Um, I, I, what I, as I work with families and I work with these kids, um, I, I love it when parents are able to celebrate each success, celebrate each success with that child. It may may be something that others who are not in the autism world would would recognize as a success, Um, but you know it's a success. You know your child's been working on that for quite some time. And when they've figured it out and they've got it down, it's time to celebrate. Mm -hmm. That's their success and that's your success. And I think that's another thing too is when your child's successful with autism, it's because... You as a parent have been putting a tremendous amount of time and effort into into helping them learn that skill. I mean, of course, the therapists are there to teach them, but you're the one who's there too, and you're reinforcing it and you're supporting that process. And so, as you celebrate your child's success, also take some credit for that. You deserve it. You (laughs) you, you, you've put a lot into this, and and I think that's define success based on your child's world, you know, and your family's world. That's really where. Where success, you know, can be defined.
0: I think that's great advice. And for all of us, we all get stuck in the moment. And it's like day-to-day, day, we sometimes forget how far we've actually climbed and how many things we've accomplished. And that's the same with our children. It's it's hard to see it. So take a step back and and really kind of say, okay, where was I six months ago? Where was I a year ago? And and to feel that and celebrate as a family. So I appreciate that advice. I think it's absolutely wonderful. But thanks again, Dr. Builder. We appreciate your information, your expertise, and your insight on so much of the work that's going on out there. And we do hope to get you back soon.
1: I would be happy to come back. I've, we've I'm so, and I really appreciate this opportunity to help you and help those who are listening understand what URAD does and what our purpose is and how we have affected um, the care that's provided um, in our community, even across, across the U.S. So thank you for that opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids, that's plural.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.